Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 85 for March 29th, 2007, Cross-Site Scripting, Part 1. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site, looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, and that means it's time to say hello to Steve Gibson from his ultra-secure Tempest-hardened lair somewhere in Southern I, California. I hope it's ultra-secure. You know about Tempest, right? Oh, sure. The military spec for uh, hardening, what, technology devices, right? Yeah, well, the, yeah, the idea was that anything that's electronic has emissions coming from it. That is, you know, anytime you've got current running through a wire, you generate a magnetic field around the wire, and when the frequencies are high enough, that ends up generating radio frequency emissions, which, of course, travel much greater distances than magnetic emissions. And so the, the whole concept behind Tempest was, you know, like in the, in the spy era, um, was that you could passively monitor the emissions of things like computers and reverse engineer what they were doing, like what the literally what was on their screens and what people were typing and so forth. They call so, that, uh, I think, Vanek freaking. At least that's what, they, what uh, Neil Stevenson calls it in uh, Cryptonomicon, which we were talking about before we began here. But we'll get to we're going to talk about books a little bit later on. Yeah, um, we have um, we have some errata from last week. Actually, only really one piece. Uh, someone commented that I messed up my ports. We were talking about <laughs> SSH and Telnet. Right. And, you know, I mean, I know what the port numbers are, but, you know, I just got myself scrambled up there. So just for the record, for, you know, in the errata category, um, FTP uses two ports, 20 and 21. That's where I went wrong. I said 21 and you said, no, that's not, that's the Telnet port. So that FTP it, is 21. Okay. Exactly. FTP is actually 20 and 21 because right. remember that the FTP uses two channels. One, a so-called control channel, which is where it, it the client and server talk to each other about what they're going to be doing. And then a separate port is is the is the data channel. So they have a control and a data channel. Well, it, instead of create a random uh, port for, for the transfer, and that's why you have to use passive F- FTP because it's an incoming random port that the server sets up. I see. Well, yeah, the, uh, yeah. The way it works actually is that in the normal sort of so the the default FTP is called active FTP right. or non non passive FTP. <laughs> right. Normal. Yeah. <laughs> What's tricky about it, and in fact, this caused problems traditionally for for people behind NAT routers, is that these connections go in opposite directions. That is, you, the client. You connect into the FTP server, and then, and then this server connects back to you. So, so, so the idea being that 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 you would say to the server, "Hey there, um, I want a connection, and and you can connect to me on this port." So you tell the FTP server what port to connect back to you on, and so so the client is also a server in the sense that it's going to accept an incoming reverse connection from the FTP server. The problem is that if you happen to be behind a NAT router, you don't, you know, computers behind NAT routers hopefully don't have to know that they're behind NAT routers. They don't have to do anything special. So, so the problem was, as we know, NAT routers make really good firewalls, hardware firewalls. So, so here the FTP client connects out to a remote FTP server and it creates, it, it sort of starts listening on some high numbered port on its computer saying, hey, remote server, connect back to me. Well, when this remote server tries to connect back to it, 
it's blocked by the NAT router because the NAT router has no idea that you know what's going on. It thinks this is just an unsolicited packet. So what? So there were two solutions. The first was to change the FTP protocol and and in so-called passive mode, so that both connections are outgoing from the client, and that solves the NAT router problem. The cooler solution, which now all contemporary NAT routers support, is they're smart enough to see a packet going out to port 20 of the remote FTP server and to literally look inside the packet to interpret the packet in the same way that the, that the FTP server will, where it says, make my reverse connection on this port. So the router dynamically opens that port for the, for the FTP server's reverse connection. So it allows regular active FTP by being basically by participating in the FTP protocol. Very cool. So, and then just to finish, uh, we, we said Telnet. Wa- we said Telnet wrong and, and and SSH wrong. So, what are the ports for Telnet and SSH? Uh, SSH is twenty two, and Telnet is uh, t- t- Telnet's twenty three. Twenty three. That's it. Okay. Exactly. Right. And yeah, it's funny too because I wanted to when, when I was making sure that I wasn't going to get myself scrambled here. I said, "Well, I'll just use GRC's port authority." I've got a, a cool. Right. A, I've got a cool facility on GRC. I don't. I don't even know if you know about this, Leo. But if you just go grc.com/slash/port equals something like port equals twenty three. Right. Um. My server sees that, and any kind of like URLs of that of that form, it's very flexible, and it will immediately take you to uh, one of our port authority database pages. And so, so then we just ha- that's why we just go there and we look it up and now we know and and now we know <laughs> and we should have done that in the first place but we were doing it off the top of our head anyway. Yeah. Hey, before we go much further, I just want to mention uh, the great folks, as you know, who are back sponsoring the show, the Nerds on Site. We need a little. I think they need a jingle. The Nerds on Site are here. The Nerds on. I don't know. Maybe oh, Leo, you may not want to ask them for that. <laughs> that could be really scary. <laughs> nerds on Site is actually a neat idea. It's a guild uh, or a, uh, um, I don't know what federation. You federation, maybe. Yeah, of tech support specialists, IT experts. Um, so it, the idea is you're you're still an independent contractor. You're in business for yourself, but you're not by yourself. So you can focus on your passion, not the burdens of running a business worldwide seven countries in fact i think they added an eight uh, eighth countries is canada u.s mexico england australia south africa bolivia and more and 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 if you're in business doing any kind of thing whether it's fix it technicians website designers your programmers project managers even sales uh trainers security experts antivirus gurus and more but they they especially love of course those folks those nerds who troubleshoot, tear apart, and rebuild their own systems in their spare time. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. Like minds, building a business, it's a great idea, and I'm really glad that uh, we can help them out. Nerds on site. IWantToBeANerd.com You know, and I, and I guess since they, they initially gave us a three-week, a, a relatively short three-week run, um, and now have have re-upped for three months it must be that there is a good intersection between the you know our listeners security now listeners and the kind of people that they're hoping to find through this campaign of of i want to be a nerd a lot of nerds listening i think steve (laughs) (laughs) well speaking of which i don't don't want to depress you or anything but i think that's the fact no you know these are our people (laughs) leo i mean i'm i'm one god knows um someday uh, we're going to tell the story which i just recently learned about your your wine cellar uh, that you're designing. Oh, my my radio telemetry. Yes, we'll yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll do that sometime. Um, we've had a lot of feedback, very positive feedback from people who have have followed our mentions in the past of of Peter F. Hamilton's books. You know, we talked about Pandora's Star and then the sequel Judas Unchained, and recently Fallen Dragon. I've got. We had a bunch of of comments back saying, from people saying, "Wow, I really loved Fallen Dragon," and specifically saying, "You know, it, you know, what else do you know? You know, who else? You know, have you discovered that it is is equally good?" And 
And I have to say that the kind of sci-fi I like is is more along the so-called you know hard sci-fi variety. I've never really understand understood why you know wizards and unicorns and things are like in the sci-fi <laughs> section of bookstores. It's so it's, annoying. They got nowhere else to put it. <laughs> I guess, but I don't think that's science fiction at all. I mean, it's fiction fiction, you know, fantasy. And I and I guess also it's it's often you see like fantasy and sci-fi. Well, to me, they these are completely different genres. Um but I did want to share thanks to, you know, the 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 quest from people for additional authors. I wanted to share another one of my finds that I am very excited about. This is a this is a guy who is literally a rocket scientist. He he designed pumps that are on the International Space Station. Wow. Um, he's he, he's an aerospace engineer uh, located out in Arizona, and he writes really good science fiction. He's got a he's got a site, and we'll put a link to this on our episode notes. Uh, it's sci-fi-az.com. S-C-I-F-I-hyphen-az.com. Um, his name is Michael McCullum. And uh, actually, he and I were just exchanging some some email because I wanted to find out about the the various formats he offers. He has his books in in paperback, so you can buy them that way, but also electronically downloadable, both PDF, uh, Microsoft Reader, and in Palm format. And he just released the sequel to a book of his that I had read. I don't know about a year and a half ago. That I really liked. It was called um, uh, Gibraltar Earth, and I was telling you about it a little bit before we started recording. That the the humanity has never encountered any other aliens, and we're out in the future exploring around, and we stumble upon evidence of a vast intergalactic uh, race that uh, that is so powerful that it just stomps, basically, it enslaves any other species that it encounters yeah baby. and but and and they don't know they they don't know that we found out about them so we scurry back to earth with our tail between our legs and the story unfolds from there well he's just done a sequel to that that i'm that i haven't read yet that i'm did i just discovered because i was i was looking up his site in order to tell our listeners about him but but there's another trilogy the antares trilogy which is just spectacular. So anyway, I, I give it my unrestrained, obviously, uh, full recommendation to, I mean, all of his stuff is really good. He also has some freely downloadable short stories. I've, I've not read them um, because I've just found his regular stuff to be so good. So I, without, without reservation, I can recommend uh, this Michael McCullum at sci-fi-az.com. I don't know. I don't have any sense for how much people enjoyed the ebook experience. You know that I'm a major ebook reader, and in fact, you and I, Leo, have both just purchased the the new Sony e paper reader. I've never even I, I, I've seen it. I have I have not yet used it, but I'm excited to to give it a try and see how it feels. Yeah, I've been using. I just got it uh, yesterday, uh, and I uh, used it last night, and I read quite a bit of uh, Neil Stevenson's uh, Quicksilver, which I had in hardcover. Uh, but I thought, well, you know, I don't want to carry these to Canada. They're too big. Well, especially, especially, you know, Stevenson's books are they're like, huge. I mean, they're, they're like carrying an encyclopedia around yeah. with you. So I uh, bought the Quicksilver Trilogy. And the funny thing is, it's only 10 megabytes, all three books, which is, they're three huge books. And right. I put them in a bunch of other stuff. And I haven't even, there's 100 megabytes worth of storage uh, to start with on that ebook reader. And I still haven't filled it for that. It's taken me, I'm not used to reading on an electronic device. It's small and lightweight and very thin. Um, and it feels like a paperback. I got a little book light for it too, because you know you need ambient light, right? Because because it, it it's an e paper display, which is to say they actually have they've got bicolored spheres, uh, white on one side, black on the other, and they electrostatically rotate the spheres to either f- have their white face front or their black face front, right? And and then the beauty is. Once you've spun these spheres, they require no power because they're in a viscous medium. They just hold their position. It's very so clever. This, 
Yeah, I mean, well, and, you know, e-paper, we've been reading about it for literally, I think, decades, but it's one of those ideas that's been, you know, it's been on the drawing board and hard to actually put into production, And but Sony, as far as I know, is, is the first commercial e-paper technology, and what's cool about it is battery life issues just go out the window. I mean, you know, they say you can read all of War and Peace four times on a single charge, so <laughs> there's just none of that. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm gonna. I have a lot of books on there, and I uh, I had the uh, Antares trilogy, and I'm now on your recommendation going to buy the Gibraltar books. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I had the Antares uh, tr- uh, trilogy in uh, Microsoft Lit format, which uh, is an incompatible format. But I'm going to get them in PDF. I wish more authors would do it. There's th- there are quite a few books I can't get, including I mean, the only only Pandora Star is the only Peter Hamilton book in the uh, Sony Connect library but i don't care if it's sony connect just put it on pdf and i can read it and i would love that well and and i really appreciate this too i mean and i know you will michael does not um no copy protection uh, exactly he, yeah. he he does not well except that i wonder about the, the, lit, the, the mic, lit format mic, is yeah yes the, the microsoft reader would be but it, it is a non-protected pdf in his i read his license page yesterday also and he said look you know i'm doing this because I I want to trust everybody, you know, please don't post these, please pay for them, don't share them. If you like my work and you want more, and believe me, I mean, I really want more. This guy, his books are just so good. He says, you know, pay for them, don't steal them, and then this can work. Well, if I've this paid ex- twice now for Antares, and I don't mind, it's so cheap. 15 bucks for three books, come on. Oh, and Leo, uh, let me tell you, you have a treat in store for you with this Antari series. It just, it's so good. Now I have too much stuff to read. <laughs> this is a bad thing. I've got a, this ebook reader has literally now 20 or 30 volumes on it. Yeah. you And how did you find, because uh, since I have not yet had the, the Sony e-paper experience, and you know that I don't mind looking at a little tiny Palm Pilot screen, how did you find that? That screen it's to pretty feel. good. You know, you could set the text size to small, medium, or large. And, of course, uh, I'm getting old, so medium was good for me. Um, it isn't high contrast. I would like it if it were a whiter background with black text. It's yep. a little gray, but it's fine. I mean, it's better than a palm, I think. And it's certainly a bigger screen than a palm. And the only other thing that bugs me a little bit, it, it sh- th- th- there are two different ways to turn a page, neither of which is very natural. Uh, at least not for me. And, I, and And there's a flicker when you turn the page, which I find a little annoying. But these are minor, and and I I did find it easy on the eyes, and I read quite a bit. I read uh, uh, about twenty or thirty pages last night, and I didn't have any uh, eye fatigue. So I think it's going to work. You know, it'll be great for an airplane, uh, and great for traveling because I can now have my whole library with me. Yeah, I'm I'm really fanatical about battery issues, and so for like if if I'm reading in a restaurant. And, you know, the waiter comes over to talk. I have to, like, you know, I mean, I, I do. I turn the power off. And you won't have that on, problem on, with this. It, yeah. Well, exactly. With this, you literally, you just, you don't even on. worry about it. No. You just lay it down because yep. it's not consuming any power. And it looks even, a little even, bit like a paperback, you know. I mean, it, 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 it it's thinner than a paperback, but it's not much bigger. And so that's kind of, I mean, you don't look like too much of a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. And it plays music, too, doesn't it? It, it, it does. I'm not play, sure how the battery uh, life would be with that, but it does. Yeah, it would probably pretty much kill it. Yeah. Well, there was one, I had one, uh. Uh, Spinrite, uh, fun story that I wanted to share. Um, I'm not going to read Tom's last name because, uh, well, you'll see when I read the story why I, he, may, he may not want me to identify him. He said, Steve, I looked all over the site and could not find anywhere to leave some feedback, so I'm mailing you here. I think he must have sent it to our support email, and then, then Greg forwarded it to me. He said, I'm a Windows systems administrator and have been dealing with bad hard drives for quite a while. I've been listening to Twit and security now since the beginning. I've been trying to get my boss to purchase Spinrite for years, but it never seems to be in the budget. Since I am a father of two small boys and daycare costs are killing me, <laughs> I've not had the funds to purchase Spinrite for myself. But I have heard and read many of the testimonials and would love to try a copy. So he then says, finally, last week, a co-worker came to me with his dead laptop. He had all of his wedding photos and many hundreds of dollars worth of downloaded music on his drive. I looked at the laptop and know for sure and knew for sure that Spinrite could fix his problem. I wonder how he knew that. How would you? Why would you think that? And he says. <laughs> he says so he says. Well, I got a copy of Spinrite through some nefarious means. Oh, shame on you, Tom. 
And he says, sorry, Steve. <laughs> and, and sure enough, Spinrite brought the hard drive back to a working state, and I was able to recover wow. everything. Wow. He says, when my coworker found out that I got everything back for him and made backups, he was delighted. He asked me what I would want in payment. I said, He he looked at me strangely and said, why 89? I told him, I told him about Spinrite and how I got a copy. So right then and there, he pulled out his credit card and we went to, we went to GRC.com and purchased Spinrite. I feel a lot better now having a legal copy. Thank you, Steve, for the great product. And I can't wait to help others in the future. It, it's a nice tool to have because uh, ex- for exactly that reason, you know, people uh, when people come to you, you can say, "Well, let me try Spinrite on it," and uh, and it's really nice to own. I have to say, it is worth it is well worth the eighty nine bucks. That's neat. What a nice story and a, and a, a happy one. ending. He ended up buying it. <laughs> That's great. And you know, frankly, I don't have any problem with that. I mean, it's why I read this. You know, technically piracy. Well, yes, but I recognize that. You know, not everyone who needs it is going to buy it. I really appreciate it, obviously, when people do, because it's what keeps me on the air, right, literally. Right. So, you know, it's it's a win for everybody. That's great. Well, thank you, Tom, for sharing your story with us. And now, what are we... We haven't told anybody what we're going to talk about today. No, 20 minutes in, and this is a big <laughs> mystery. <laughs> but it is important. Well, if you if you heard the title and you heard me announce it, I guess you probably know. We're going to talk about... Uh, something that is a big security issue. Wait, wait, wait. Are you announcing this some other time? I don't think you even gave us Well, a at title the beginning, yet. you don't hear it, but uh, at the beginning of every show, I say, well, ah. and I tell them the name of the show and, and okay. uh, the date. Just so that if you're listening on a shuffle or something and you don't have a readout, you know whether you've heard this one or not. So they That's know good. that this is cross-site scripting part one. They may not know what that means, but they know what that what we're talking about. So what are well, we talking about? Yeah, the, the it's something that we have... We have never yet touched on, I, I don't even think at all. I mean, most of the time we'll, we'll like, you know, swing by some topic when we're talking about something else and then move on. And then later, you know, weeks or months later, come back to like really focus on something that we've talked about before. Um, what I would, I would generalize cross-site scripting a little bit more and, and say that it is about web-based code injection and cross-site scripting is one major way that that can happen. The other Another, one is uh, buffer overflows. Well, no, because that's that's not necessarily web-based. That's a technique. It can, it, exactly. Well, in fact, we've, of course, extensively talked about buffer overrun issues. The, and in, in buffer, run, buffer overrun issues, a hacker is, is injecting executable machine code essentially into directly into some other application over a communications connection um the so so this kind of so 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 you're certainly right that that is also remote code injection in this case we're talking sort of about web-based apps which turn out to have a disturbing number of vulnerabilities to this kind of exploit but but the second type is something called SQL injection or SQL injection SQL having pretty much become the de facto dominant database language um, because it's you know there's now open SQL my SQL uh, Microsoft of course is is pushing uh, SQL or SQL as it is often as that acronym is also is often pronounced and it turns out that because SQL is scriptable. You know how I feel about scripting, Leo. Yeah. Um, uh, there's all kinds of problems there too. So, so for a long time, I've had this on my list of things to talk about. But something happened last Saturday afternoon on the East Coast that sort of said, "Okay, now is the time to discuss this." So, this is a big topic, and because we're doing an audio podcast, and and. I, I want to make sure people are able to visualize this. I'm not going to try to cram too much content into this first introduction. So, so to this week is sort of introduction to this issue. This will be sort of the teaser for what I think will be the next two weeks. And then the, the week after that, we'll be back to one of our Q&As where we'll be able to 
to, to tie up any loose ends and and answer any questions that have come about from talking about this. Okay. So, what happened last uh, last Saturday was that a guy named Billy Hoffman from SPI Dynamics, which is a well-known, good-reputation security research firm, um, he gave a presentation at a at a funny name to hacker conference called ShmooCon. <laughs> uh, it's an it's a three day. It was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. A three day East Coast hacking conference. Um, the title of his talk was JavaScript malware for a gray goo tomorrow. <laughs> I like it. I don't know what it means, but I like it. Well, I, the gray goo is in that uh, a nanotech problem that uh, people have raised, that maybe if there were too much nanotech, would it all become gray goo? Just become, just be reduced to gray goo. Gray goo. Just sort of like thoroughly homogenized. A slurry. <laughs> Okay, so leading up to this, there were a couple interesting stories, and in fact, afterwards, I want to and that is stories in the news, and I want to I want to run through these quickly because they are full of really good quotes from 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 Billy and other people. Um, in in E Week, there was a uh, th- this basically was was covered under the the subject tool turns any JavaScript enabled browser into a malicious drone. Wow. A new tool too dangerous to give away can turn any PC, Windows, <sighs> Mac, Linux. Oh. Uh-huh. Yep. Into any device with a browser or that is to say or any device with a browser into a site attacker. The tool called Jikto. Now okay, Jikto, J I K T O. That's actually J stands for Java. There was an earlier tool, a a web vulnerability scanner called Nikto. Of course, Nikto Nikto is a word. Exactly. (laughs) From the day the earth stood still. Definitely have your geek hat on. (laughs) Klaatu Barada Nikto. That's what you had to tell the robot to save the earth. Well, because the the robot's name was was Klaatu. Klaatu, right. Right. Klaatu. And so you had to address Klaatu and then give him this coded phrase. So, so anyway, this is not Nikto. This is Jikto, J I K T O. It's a web application scanner that searches for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Hmm. Billy Hoffman, a security researcher with SPI Dynamics, demonstrated what the tool could do at the ShmooCon Hacker Convention on March 24th, namely Jikto, which is written in JavaScript. Okay, JavaScript. You know how I feel about lovely JavaScript. Hmm. How you feel about Web 2.0, Leo, and I know that they're inseparable, but this can surreptitiously latch onto a browser, and remember any browser, Windows, Mac, Linux, that has JavaScript enabled. After silently inserting itself to run inside any browser, be it that of a PC or even a cell phone, Jikto can then search sites for for, for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities and report its findings to a third party without the user of the infected browser being aware. So get this, you you go to a site that it, that is, you know, with JavaScript enabled, which we understand most people have to have to get the functionality of Web 2.0 and, you know, all the fancy stuff that's being done these days. Or you receive email and you're using a web-based email viewer, as most people are by default. One way or another, this JavaScript runs. It basically, it commandeers your browser on the spot, turning it into a scanning tool, which will, which will then scan other websites for vulnerabilities and report what it finds to a third party. It's a, and, and so Hoffman says it can also replicate itself onto sites containing cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, meaning that it has the capability of also being a worm which can self-propagate and then spread via latching onto other visiting browsers. This is something that JavaScript wasn't supposed to be able to do, but unfortunately, Hoffman says it can, and he demonstrated it. Wow. So, so that was one. That, that, that that's part of one story. Then I wanted there were some more good quotes in a um, uh, a guy named Joris Evers who reports for uh, CNET News wrote a story before and after, 
And there was a bit of controversy stirred up by his first story, which was, you know, there were like blogs about it because he either he either made a, made a mistake or believed one way or the other that this that 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 Billy Hoffman was going to release the the JavaScript code for this at the conference. Oh boy! Maybe maybe they said so. Maybe they changed their mind. It's not clear. But 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 Joris's first story says a security researcher has found a way. Hackers can make PCs of unsuspecting web servers do their dirty work without having to actually commandeer their systems. That's possible with a new security tool called Jikto. The tool is written in JavaScript and can make PCs uh, make PCs of unknowing web surfers hunt for flaws in other websites, said Jikto creator Billy Hoffman, a researcher at web security firm SPI Dynamics. Hoffman, who developed the tool as a way to advance web security, plans to release Jikto publicly later this week at the ShmooCon Hacker event in Washington, D.C. Quote, this is going to drastically change the scope of evil things you can do with JavaScript, unquote, Hoffman said. Quote, Jikto turns any PC into my little drone. Your PC will start attacking websites on my behalf, and you're going to give me all of the results. Wow. With the, uh, with the advent of online applications, hackers have shown increased interest in breaching web security through vulnerabilities such as cross-site scripting bugs and SQL injection flaws, which have been around for years. Such, uh, even though these have been around for years, such security problems are increasingly being reported and exploited. Jikto is a web application vulnerability scanner. It can silently crawl and audit public websites and then send the results to a third party, Hoffman said. Jikto can be embedded into an attacker's website or injected into trusted sites by exploiting a common web security hole known as cr- cross-site scripting flaw. Vulnerability scanners by themselves aren't new. Hackers often use such tools to find holes that let them break into systems. Jikto is like Nikto, a web application bug scanning tool popular among hackers. The difference is that Nikto is a traditional PC application, while Jikto runs in a web browser and distributes the bug hunting task across multiple PCs. Like SETI, so SETI at home for hackers. Kind exactly. Of. Well, exactly. Or, you know, like, like we're all familiar with the whole problem of, of bot fleets and distributed DOS attacks. Now we've got distributed vulnerability scanning courtesy of of Jikto, which is just written in JavaScript, wow. which was, you know, originally designed not to be able to do this kind of thing. Now, he didn't release the code. He just demonstrated it, it uh, working. So Correct. We, I, we don't know exactly what it's doing. It may, in fact, be calling a Nikto server somewhere. In fact, I suspect it probably is. So you wouldn't write Nikto in JavaScript. You couldn't really make that something you could well, the code has the code has leaked. Oh, it has. Oh, well. well code <laughs> now we'll find out. And the reason I mention that is because uh, if it does do something like that, and this is an example of why security, this happens all the time, that they demonstrate these flaws at security conferences, but they don't give enough details to really know. And for instance, if this requires a Nikto server somewhere, it would you would be caught red-handed at some point because it would be calling your server and you you know people would know who you are. Yes, and again, um, I've not looked at the code. Um, That's an example I, I, of a potential flaw that you wouldn't know until you saw the code. Well, and the other thing too is certainly if it's if it's going to be returning its results back to, for example, its oh, it, its point. originator, yeah. then then certainly you're able you're able to look at the code and track that down too. The problem, of course, is that these could be sites where you've got an unfriendly nation or an uncaring nation. You know, with whom we don't right, have a, right. a relationship. You know, I mean, or it, 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 they they could use the same sort of obscuration techniques that the IRC chat servers do. For example, it could log to an IRC chat channel and send its its results into the IRC cloud, where it just disappears because it's been it's being relayed autonomously from one IRC server to another. And the biggest problem is. That, as is always the case with these things, once someone knows it's possible, 
it's not hard to recreate it. That is to say, just the fact that right. this has made the news, that you know, we're talking about it, it's been blogging all over the place. You know, if, if you put Jikto into Google now, it's, you get just pages of this stuff. So, so now it's known that someone did this. And once you know that someone did this, it's just not difficult. You just, you know, I mean, everybody is smart out there who's, who's involved in this. And so it's just not difficult to recreate these kinds of results. And you said you know, it's leaked down. So even if yes, even if you weren't smart, that's what I worry about. I don't worry about the guys who are smart enough to figure it out. I worry about the, the script kiddies who aren't, but will use this maliciously. Well, yes. And in fact, it's, it's interesting because there are there are papers that have been written by researchers as much as 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. In fact, I've, I've got I've got one here. That was uh, put together by a bunch of Microsoft guys in early February of the year 2000, and I want to—I just want to read verbatim what they say about cross-site scripting. They say under consequences of the attack, and I'll, I'll put links to this whole paper, and we'll be talking about this again. In and we're going to get into the real detail, the nitty-gritty of what this is next week and the week after, although week after we, we may talk about SQL injection because it's related but not the same. But Microsoft writes. Assuming that a particular web server is vulnerable to cross-site scripting attacks, the attacker can run a script in the wrong security context. This means that cookies can be read, locked down plugins, or native code can be instantiated and scripted with untrusted data. User input can be intercepted, any web browser supporting scripting is potentially vulnerable, as is any web server that supports HTML forms and even HTTPS. That is, you know, secure sockets connection. A secure connection provides no immunity. Data gathered by the malicious script can be sent back to the attacker's website. For example, if the script has used the DHTML object model, that is dynamic HTML, to extract data from a page then it can send it to the attacker by fetching a URL. As long as the user navigates within a given domain, that is, within the same domain, a robust exploit script can follow the user. This attack can be used against machines behind firewalls. Many corporate local area networks are configured so that client machines within their LAN um, trust servers on the LAN but do not trust servers on the outside internet. Right, However, right, right, uh huh. So it's a way of breaching that tr- th- those zones of trust. Mm. It says, however, a server outside a firewall can fool a client inside the firewall into believing that a trusted server inside the firewall has asked it to execute a program. To do this, all the attacker needs is a web server inside the firewall, like the corporate intranet server, that doesn't check fields and forms for special characters. Only one page on one web server in a domain is required to compromise the entire domain and network. This is true even if the vulnerable web server doesn't hold any important data, because, of course, it can be used as a jumping-off point. It can still be used as part of an attack on other machines within the same domain. All web servers should guard against this attack, even ones that don't perform critical tasks. So, okay, in a nutshell, and this is what we're going to expand upon next week, the, the the big problem is sort of a gotcha that the the originators of HTML and web never thought about. And that is what happens when for any reason at all users, that is clients of a of a web server, are able to provide anything that is going to be redisplayed. And that's that's the fundamental flaw in in the web architecture. That is, originally in day one of the web, as we know, web servers were serving static pages. That is, users would go and you know you just clicked on links and you looked at pages that that the webmaster um, and his people had created 
for people to download and view. That is, browsers were simply browsers. They, they looked at static pages that never changed. Every time you went back, you saw the same page. Then, of course, little additions were made, like web counters, like, you know, how many visitors have been to this site you know, or, or um, how many visitors have viewed this page. So there were, we were seeing a little bit of dynamic content. But, of course, the whole big explosion in the net came, or in, especially in the web, came from making sites interactive. I mean, you know, um, any kind of a forum is an interactive site. You know, dig is an interactive site where, you know, anytime users are able to post content to the server, which it will then serve to other users, it radically changes the rules. Because what happens is you immediately get an interaction between the notion of trusted content coming from a server and the fact that you are displaying content from an untrusted source. That is, you know, anybody can log on to an open forum and post their comment. When, when they do that, text that they've provided is then being stored by the server and is being redisplayed to other people who visit the site. Well, here's the problem. The there is no separation between textual displayed content and executed scripting content. That is because of the evolution of the web, there was no there was no really clear and clean delineation between text that the web server sent your browser, which you would see, and text which it would execute. In fact, all you have to do is have a, an, open, an open bracket, you know, less than sign, the word script, and then a closing bracket, and then anything after that until the, the closing script tag is treated as scriptable content. Then arguments to that script tag tell, tell the browser what kind of scripting it is, what language, what version, and so forth, so that it's able basically to turn its scripting engine loose on whatever this text is in between these tags. And there, it turns out there are a bunch of different tags that will end up causing the interpretation of text as script, which is to say, you know, to, to run scripting, and that all you need to do is to, all a uh, an attacker needs to do is figure out some way to get a web server to serve this script when it thinks it's serving just non-executable text and even after this problem was known it turns out that there are still very clever ways of finding holes in in the prevention of this. For example, you would imagine that you could simply tell your web server, um, strip out any bracketed things. That is, anything with a bracket and a closed bracket. Well, there are normally exceptions. People want to be able to put italics in their postings or underline words in their postings or do, you know, have some formatting controls. And it turns out that, that exceptions in the way text is parsed has still allowed holes to be found. And that's, for example, what these so-called web vulnerability scanners are scanning for, is they're looking for any sorts of active content. Historically, web servers even came with a bunch of default pages and default scripts which were vulnerable. So you could just have, for example, there were some versions of Microsoft's IIS where there, when you installed the server, it gave you a whole bunch of like starter pages, which many, you know, like sample pages, which many people left alone. And they were vulnerable to cross-site scripting. So people would immediately be able to leverage them. And in fact, this is one of the ways, you know, we're always hearing about websites being defaced you know, sites being changed, home pages changed, and so forth. It has been these kinds of, of cross-site scripting which allows those kinds of defacements to happen. That, that's been the enabling technology. Well, I guess we're going to have to rethink the enabling technology then. I mean, it's, well, it's of a course, little scary. It, 
it really is scary. And I mean, it's yes, it's powerful that you can have inline scripting just mixed right in with your text. But the fact that you can do that, the fact that, for example, scripting isn't somehow sequestered completely separate from content, but it in fact is just a form of content. And it is, I mean, to say it's active or alive, I mean, that's almost an understatement. It's, it's hyperactive. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and it really does, it really <laughs> does create an opportunity for exploits. So we're going to continue to cover this subject in the next uh, couple of episodes, give you a more, some more in-depth uh, look at how cross-site scripting works and so forth. In fact, what, what are we going to talk about next time? Um, next time will be some some exact examples of of all the very few things that a web server the little the few mistakes a web server needs to make in order to allow cross site scripting exploits. I'm going to get oh very specific very specific with some examples and walk our listeners exactly through, for example, how how you could end up with another with an attacker capturing your cookies which is your logon credentials for a site like Amazon or eBay, mm. which would allow them to then assume your identity right. and take it from there. And, and meanwhile, you might want to download Nikto, N-I-K-T-O, and uh, run it against your sites and see, see if you've got any of these vulnerabilities. I presume Nikto does a good job of it. Um, I, I don't know of other uh, programs that can do the same thing, but that very interesting, very interesting. It makes you it makes you want to go out and get a Staros uh, security gateway right now <laughs> and, and run it everywhere you can. Uh, this spot, show is brought to you, as I mentioned, uh, and I do mention every week, by the good folks at Astaro Security. They make the great Astaro Security Gateway, which is a security appliance that runs on open source software. The newest version, version 7, is out now with uh, email encryption at the... Uh, at the uh, server side on the and so you don't have to worry about it on the client side at the at the device also secure remote access via SSL VPN which is fantastic and scalability via clustering uh, star has developed a unique brand of active active clustering that enables a load distribution uh, for as many as 10 gateways eliminating the need to install additional load balancers is very cool it's a patent pending technology which really increases the speed and reliability of network traffic so you know when you Invested in a Staro security gateway, you uh, you can you can grow it as your enterprise grows. And don't forget, by the way, home user licenses are available for free for the V7 package, including all subscriptions in a Staro up to date. That's a that's a great deal. A Staro. Find out more by uh, visiting on the web at www.astaro.com or. If you're so inclined, you can also uh, find out more about Astaro. In fact, even subs- uh, uh, go to them and uh, and sign up for a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway uh, in your enterprise uh, by going to 877-4-ASTARO. Wait a minute, let me check that to make sure that's right, because I actually don't have it sitting in front of me. I have this all memorized now. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds very familiar, Leo. <laughs> it sounds like the right number, but let me, let me, just, uh, let me just look it up. In the meantime, while you're doing that, I'm going to correct my own errata from uh, the beginning of the show. Even as I said it, I knew I was misspeaking. And so for anyone who's already sent off email telling me that I still got my <laughs> the port still got my I still got my FTP ports backwards. I mean, I know so well that the server listens on port 21, and I'm sure that I said it listens on port 20, which I know is not the case. Okay. You know, FTP is the main, it's, it's the control channel for FTP. The server 21. listens on port 21. 21. And, then, and then it's port 20 that is the, the, data the, 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 the reverse, yes, the reverse channel, the data channel. I always, so, I always thought it was a random port. I, I must have misunderstood the spec when I was looking at it. That they would, well, it's random at the client end, but because... because oh, oh cli- okay, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so it so it's whatever port the client is able to be assigned by the OS. Remember that that service ports are only able to be opened. That okay, service ports are those ports from from ten twenty four and lower. Those are only able to be opened for listening by privileged uh, processes in Unix. So so that clients are unable to listen, for example, on 21 and 20, they're able to listen on high numbered ports. So the idea is that that the that the client makes the remote connection to the server on port 21 and says, I've just opened port whatever, 32654, um, connect back to me. And so the server connects from its port 20 
up to the client's specified port number. Okay, got it. So, and fixed my, fixed my own mistake there. And the number for Astaro is, <laughs> I was right, 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, for a free trial in your home. We thank them for their support. Well, I think now we have, uh, we, this is the first time we ever uh, had an errata correction in the actual sh- show, correcting an errata at the beginning of the show. So that's impressive. The turnaround's getting very quick on these errata. Steve, lots of fun. We'll come back next week to talk more about cross-site scripting. And of course, uh, your, your questions should uh, continue to flow to grc.com. He's got a form there. I'm sure it's safe. Tested for cross-site scripting. You, yes, because I'm because I'm not displaying anything that anyone posts. Although Leo, I have to tell, I have to say, I will confess that that GRC did have a cross-site scripting vulnerability oh, years ago. Interesting. Back back when IIS, Microsoft's IIS, was having so much trouble with um, with its own URL parsing. Remember, there were all kinds of exploits where you were able to to like to put funky. Um, Unicode characters in the URL in order to get IIS to misbehave. And I was unhappily using IIS, and I didn't have any sort of filter. So I wrote my own URL pre-parsing filter to intercept any and all incoming URLs before they got to IIS. And what I did was I had a page that, that would intercept and say, Oh, I called it the uh, APF, the Advanced Prophylactic Filter, because <laughs> it was a prophylactic for IIS that, that would, you know, basically protect IIS from any badness trying to get in. Um, and what it did was it was a, when, when you got intercepted by this, it showed you the URL that was illegal. Oops, because huh. what that meant was that you, that the user was providing a was was providing something anything which could cause the server to redisplay it even as an error message and so there was a that created a cross site scripting vulnerability which someone pointed out to me and I quickly changed so it's like yeah i mean it's so easy to do it is. you have to i mean you have to be just ever vigilant i mean it's very much like although different of course from the buffer overrun problem where you know it just it requires so much vigilance and so the problem is with with all of our contemporary um, sort of next generation web 2.0 applications, which are all about like you know Wikipedia and Dig and online forums and 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 communal blogging, any situation where the server can has any reason to display what someone provides, that creates real trouble due to the fact that text and script. They are they're able to cohabitate on right, a page. Right, 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 right. Well, go to grc.com. Look at that form. Find a hole. Find a flaw, and let us know. <laughs> and meanwhile, while you're there, you can download 16 kilobit versions of this podcast and Elaine's great transcription, so you can read along on complicated subjects like this. I think it's always helpful to read along as you're listening to Steve. You can refer back to it. Show the boss. Explain why you have to recode the entire site. All of that. All of that is at grc.com, along with. Uh, all of Steve's free security software and the great Spinrite, the world's finest disk recovery and maintenance utility. Steve, we'll wrap this up, but we'll reconvene in a week. What do you say? Yep, we're going to need everybody to have their propeller caps on next week. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Steve. See you then. Security now.